Good morning, everyone. Are you glad to be here this morning? I sure am. Uh, today's especially special to me. I've had a lot of people that have uh, just congratulated me, on, congratulated me on 20 years. And so today is like officially 20 years to this week uh, that I became the pastor at Living Water. And I am extremely humbled by what God has done and all the many faces and the people I've got to meet over the years. Um, and it's truly, truly a great day to be here in a, in a full house. So welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, as David said, Second Samuel Chapter 11, we began a series a few weeks back, so about 10 years ago, I read a book by Phil Tuttle called Crucible, The Choices That Change Your Life Forever, and it just was a powerful book and a look at a character named David, um, and I loved it so much, we shared it 10 years ago, and I thought, man, it's, a, it's a, such a good study, we need to look at it again, and so we began this series a few weeks back, Crucible, The Choices That Change Your Life Forever, and the idea of a crucible is obviously this little device here that you can put stuff in and you can heat it up. To, to temperature so hot that um, something begins to happen and take place, that things begin to separate and divide apart, and then the chaff or the trash begins to float to the top. And the idea is, if you're a jeweler, is to scrape the dross or the trash off of the top so you have a more pure thing that you're working for, or working with. And so the idea is God sits as a, a refiner above us, and so he uses things in our lives to grow us in our faith. God is in the business of growing character. He loves you right where you're at, but he refuses to leave you there. Um, and so these crucible moments, pressure, intense situations that we go through, Romans 8 tells us that God causes all things, say all things, Difficult situations in life, he uses all things to work together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So God wants to grow us in our faith. And so we've been looking at some of the crucible moments in the life of David, this man after God's own heart. And this story today is as popular as the David and Goliath story that everyone knows. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. And I'm intrigued by this story because there's a couple big ideas that I pull away from just initially. Uh, number one is really good people are capable of doing some really bad things. Anybody else in the room can identify with that? Listen, the reality is, is as human beings, we walk in this world and we're always just, just like a tightrope. There are things that we want to do, there are things that we don't want to do, and we can find ourselves from time to time slipping into areas that we don't want anything to do with. And the pastors are not exempt from that. I know that for years we used to put pastors on a pedestal. If I could just get my life um, in, in, in order like the pastor, I got a news flash for you. We're messed up too. All right? And so the reality is, is I know firsthand what it's like to feel guilt, to feel shame, to feel condemnation. I know what it's like to hear whispered in my ear, hey, you call yourself a pastor? You call yourself a Christian? You, you, call, you, you call yourself a great husband? Or, I mean, we know what the accuser of the brethren does. And I know I'm not alone because if you're here today, every one of us are in the same boat, right? We all struggle from time to time. And we're capable, good people, great people are capable of just doing some really crazy things. That's what we see in the life of David. But another theme that I love in this is no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've blown it, I love, love, love the picture of God's restoration in King David, this man after God's own heart. So let's look at that today in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. David is now king, um, and, and what we've seen so far is this man, David, God looks at the inside, not the outside. God has chosen David because of his character. We know that when David is faced with a trial, with a, a battle, he faces his battles with faith and not with fear, 
And then we see when he had the opportunity to take King Saul out, when Saul was trying to kill him, he didn't take advantage of the circumstances or the opportunities, but he relied on truth. You know what? God's the one in control. It's his timing. It's his purpose. Saul is anointed just like I am. I'm going to let God deal with that. And last week we looked at no matter how bad it gets, when everybody else was running to despair, David chose resolve. It said David strengthened himself and the Lord his God. And so far we've been looking at all these positive things as we look at these crucible moments in David's life. And today we actually see an example of one of his greatest strengths, passion. But how many of you know our greatest strength can also be a greatest weakness if it's not channeled in the right direction? And so in this case where David was the man after God's own heart, he was passionate to serve the Lord, finds himself in a moment of weakness, and he follows that desire, that passion, down a road that is so destructive. I mean, one innocent first step leads deeper and deeper and deeper into a destructive pattern. And I just want you to know that all of us are capable of falling into the same kind of fate, right? And here's what I know what Scripture tells us. Paul says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these stories, these examples in Scripture are given to us, us, as examples and as warnings that we don't repeat the same thing. So I'm thankful for God's Word today. And, and if I were David's spokesperson back in the life of David, hey, David, we're going to write an autobiography on your life. You're the, the man after God's own heart. You're the greatest king Israel's ever had. But I want to leave that part of your story out. That's a little embarrassing, David. You know, that little blunder with Bathsheba. Let's leave that out, but I'm thankful that God included it in the text for us today to learn from and to glean from in his word, right? So are you ready? All right, let's pray. Father, we are ready. Uh, We want to hear from you. God, it's our desire. It's not Shane's words. God, it's your word that carries the power, and so God, we are ready, and we want to receive what you have for us today, so open our ears that we may hear your truth. Open our hearts that we may receive the truth of your word, God, and let us have the courage to apply or to respond in the way, Holy Spirit, that you may want us to um, respond or apply this in our lives today. We ask it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. So quickly, we're going to look through the story, and we're going to notice like the flow, the sin, the consequence of the sin, and then David's cover-up in three phases And then, obviously, the result of that, and then we'll shift to a more of a practical application, how we can apply this in our lives today, because God's Word has application even for us today. Amen? So, chapter 11, verse 2. Let's read. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Let me just tell you, in those days, it was not uncommon uncommon for people to bathe on top of the roof. It was kind of private, up out of sight. The problem is, if you're the king, you've got a different vantage point. And it just says, David one day looked out the window and saw this woman of unusual beauty. He's not sinned yet, right? He just notices this beautiful woman. Verse 3, he sent someone to find out who she was. This is also... Pretty common if you're the king. The king had the harem. And so he's just like, hey, go check her out. See if she's who she is. Bring me a report. So it says, he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Right there should have been a big stop sign, right? Hey, David, she's taken. She's already married. She's off limits. But notice what David does. Verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. You know, it's important to follow the ceremonial laws if you're going to break one of the big commands, right? So uh, 
She's finished that period there, and it says, Then she returned home. Verse 5, Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. So we see the sin that began with an innocent glance that just quickly spiraled into deeper, deeper problems, and now we've got a problem on our hands. You're the king of all of Israel, and there's a woman that's not your wife, and she is pregnant. So what are you going to do? David begins with a cover-up plan. Phase 1, verse 6. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, you know, the husband of Bathsheba. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, hey, I want you to go home and relax or to, to wash your feet. That was kind of a, 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 just an idea of going home and making yourself at home and enjoy all the comforts um, that home has for you, um, including being with your wife. So David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But listen to this, verse 9. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Right here at the beginning, you see this contrast between deceit and integrity. Uriah the Hittite shows integrity. David, the king, the man after God's own heart, begins this this, this spiraling path into deception. Hey, we got a problem, and we need to cover it up. So... The idea is, let's bring the husband home. Hopefully he'll sleep with his wife and no one will know any different. And they don't do like we do now where you count the days and go, "Mm mm-hmm. I mean, they just know, hey, close to nine months is good enough. Maybe everybody will think it's Uriah's child. But Uriah didn't take the bait. He didn't go home. It says in verse 10, when David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away so long? Uriah replied, the ark of the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear I would never do such a thing. Again, this contrast of integrity versus deception. Verse 12, David responds, all right, well, stay here today. David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Phase number two. Verse 13, then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. And it didn't tell us all the details. We don't know how much Uriah could handle, but when the king says, hey, have a drink, I'm sure he was just drinking, and the intent of the king was to get him drunk. And I think the idea was, hey, this man has a strong moral compass, and his integrity won't allow him to do what I need him to do to cover up my sin. So let me get him wasted, and maybe he'll let that guard down, and we can take care of this. But watch this. But even when he couldn't get Uriah, or but even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Even a drunk Hittite showed more integrity in this moment than the man after God's own heart in his deception. Phase number two didn't work. On to phase number three, verse 14. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. So picture this, Uriah is going to return to the fight with a letter in his hand signed by the king that would ultimately be his own death sentence in a letter. I might point out that the integrity of Uriah is so good that David trusted Uriah to carry this letter without peeking at the contents and finding out what was on the inside of that letter. David, uh, excuse me, Uriah showed his integrity even in that moment. It says, the letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. 
So Joab assigned Uriah to the spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. There was collateral damage, but phase three was a a tragic success. Joab sent a battle report to David. He says, report all the, uh, the news of the battle of the king, but he might get angry and ask, why did you guys get so close to the wall? You knew it was fierce there. You're going to get killed. He says, but then when he does that, just make sure and let him know that Uriah the Hittite also perished. So the messengers went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open field, and he said, as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers of the wall shot arrows at us. At us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Mission accomplished. Your It says, well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. And so David, it says, then when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of her mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace. And she became one of his wives and she gave birth to a son. All is well that ends well. If you're in David's shoes, you're thinking, tragedy diverted, right? And I got in over my head, and I needed to fix the mistake, and he begins to cover up. Phase one doesn't work. Phase two doesn't work. And ultimately, he gets to phase three where he has Uriah murdered. And he thinks it's over, at least, for now. And if you're keeping track, let me just remind you that so far, David is guilty. This man, after God's own heart, is guilty of breaking four of the Big Ten Commandments. You know, the one that says, thou shalt not murder? Check. The one that says, thou shalt not commit adultery, check. The one that says, thou shalt not covet a neighbor's wife, check. And the one that says, thou shalt not steal, Nathan the prophet would tell him in chapter 12, you have stolen the wife of Uriah the Hittite, check. Someone once said, when David was good, could there be anyone better? But when David was bad, could there be anyone worse? What a picture of a great road of devastation and destruction that King David is on. James chapter 1 describes a common dynamic between temptation and sin. It tells us that when we're tempted, that we're not to accuse God of tempting us, because God never tempts anyone. But he says, but instead, temptation comes from, that is the source of temptation. He said, temptation comes from our own desire Epithemia, which means cravings or longing or lust, an intense desire uh, for something, some particular thing that we want. And he says it starts there with desire. And because the desire is there, it's like this thought that's in us, right? And we, we toy with that, we play with that, and we think, hey, it's innocent enough because I'm not hurting anyone. It's just in my mind. And so we play out the fantasy or we let it build up and we let it kind of build a foundation there. But the problem with that is the enemy of our soul knows our temptations. He knows the bait to throw, if you will. If he was an angler and we were fish, he's like, I know exactly which lure to throw their way. And here's the thing, he may not throw your lure at me and he may not throw my lure at you, but he knows which lure to throw. And so it begins with this desire, this thought. You've heard the phrase that said, you know, that they they do the unthinkable. Before you do the unthinkable, you think the undoable. So it begins with desire. And desire, James says, um, which 
he says, then, uh, let's see, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. That's like baiting us, right? And when you take the bait, that temptation, it gives birth to sin. And he said, when sin is full grown, it brings death, some form of death. And so we see this progression, if you will, from desire, temptation, sin, and death. And David and Bathsheba's example is a stark example of this pattern of destruction. See, when we get out of sync with God and we try to do things on our own, like, you know what, I know what God's word says, but I'm going to try to do this on my own. We can make some serious missteps in life from time to time. And let me just tell you, it can take you down a path of destruction that you never want to be on. It can also make you experience consequences that you never wanted to experience. And there's another phrase that said, sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you there longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you far more than you ever want to pay. We see this in the life of David. Can you relate to that pattern? Have you experienced that in your own life? Or maybe you've seen it in the life of someone else? Here's another question like David who was trying to cover up. Is there something that you and I are trying to cover up this morning? Thinking maybe if I just keep it hidden and, and just keep my mouth shut and don't let anybody know, just keep that secret tucked away in the darkness, maybe in time it'll go away. Can I remind you if that's you this morning to let David's example sink in and reconsider? Because there's just one verse at the end of that story that just kind of hangs there, waiting to be developed. In fact, um, David will share that next week with us. Because when David thought all was clear, all is well that ends well, it says this, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. If this were a movie, it would be like, dum-dum-dum, or uh, a series, it would be like, to be continued, ooh, what happens next? But don't miss this point. While other people might have missed it, he might have fooled many other people. It says, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. God knew. Amen? And so God knew what David had done. And so if we're in the same boat, it's like, let us reconsider. Let us look at the example of David and consider that. But let us also remember the promise that God is faithful and that he always provides a way of escape for us with the temptations that we face. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God is faithful? And do you believe his word? If he says, hey, listen, it's not going to get so bad that you can't handle it. I will always provide a way of escape. Do you believe that? Because it's what the scriptures tell us. And so 1 Corinthians 10, this might be one for you to mark down or underline or bookmark or highlight. Um, it's a really good passage. But the Apostle Paul is talking about the examples of Israel's idolatry. There are many sins. And he goes on to talk about, don't do the things that they did. They all experienced God, but they were disobedient to God. He says, these things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did. Or worship idols as some of them did. He goes on in verse 8 to say, and we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to test or to the test as some of them did, and they died of snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the angel of death. And so he goes on to say, hey, all of these stories, all of these, these, these things that we're reading in the Scripture, like the Scripture that we're reading today of David, all of these happened to them as examples to us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. Let me just stop right there for a moment. Because the tendency for us is when we read a story as heinous as the story of David and Bathsheba is to say, I would never do that. Right? 
I mean, like I'm guilty of doing some things wrong, but I would never stoop that low. And let me just remind you that good people are capable of doing some really, really bad things. Such is the case with David. It's like we need to realize that we too have the possibility of slipping into this destructive pattern, giving in desires, giving in the temptation, and sinning against God. Do you know that to be true? So that's a reality. The possibility is there, but there's another possibility. When we're talking about choices that change your life forever, in the middle of that moment, we can choose integrity. We can choose to avoid the temptation. We're going to choose to, we can choose to avoid that destructive um, pattern. And so what Scripture tells us, if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. First off, like, hey, pride comes before a fall. Don't think that you're too good to fall into some sin because David was the man after God's own heart and it happened to him. It can happen to us as well. So it's a possibility. Then he goes on to say, the temptations in your life are no different from the others or what others have experienced. So you can't say, hey, I just got a specific, you know, no one else struggles the way I, no, no. He says they're all common among all men. But here's the key, and God is faithful. Church, know this, God is faithful. Like, we're not faithful, but God is faithful. And it says this, he will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Did you hear that? So even in the midst of temptation, he says, hey, listen, it starts with desires. And the desire gives way to temptation, temptation to to sin, and sin gives birth to death. That's this dangerous path to destruction. But the good news is, God says, hey, listen, uh, I'm not going to allow that temptation to be strong, too strong for you. I will always, say always, I'll always provide a way out. Here's what Satan does. Satan wants us to think that we're the only ones that struggle with our particular sin. You know, people say, Shane, man, I, I don't know what happened, but when I was born, I missed the line for brains. And I accidentally got in the line for hormones, and I got like a double, triple dose of that. I'm like, yeah, you and every other male on the planet. <laughs> but what we want to believe is like, you know, I must be the only one that struggles with this. And it's exactly what Satan wants us to think, right? And he'll start telling you things like, look, look, you can't afford for this to get out because it could ruin your character. I mean, there's this image up here. People are looking at you, and they're holding you to a high standard. If that comes out, it could just destroy everything. It could cost you a fight in your marriage, maybe even cost you your marriage. It, it, you don't want this to come out. Whatever you do, you need to keep this thing locked up tight and away from everyone else. The problem is he doesn't tell us that when we bring those things to the light, they lose all of their power. This might be a good place for me to recommend to each one of us the need for that special person in your life that you can trust, that you can share those things. Hey, listen, brother, listen, sister, I'm struggling with this, and you know that person's a safe place. They're not going to run and put it on Facebook. They're not going to run and get on the phone, and they're not going to judge you. They love you anyway. I am blessed to have some of those men in my life, and I think there's a benefit to each one of us to be in a spot where we know we're not alone, but when we're struggling with something, we can say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I need you to pray for me. I'm struggling with this. But it's one of the most difficult things to do, isn't it? Because we don't want people to see our big ugly. But the reality is God already does. And if we look at this destruction, this path, we know that it's not going to get any better until it's dealt with. And so 
If God is always going to provide a way of escape, and one of those ways is just to bring it to the light where it loses its power, I think the first step we can do is like, you know what, God, I want to bring this to the light, confess my sins. He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me of unrighteousness. James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So there's a benefit in accountability. And so here's some more encouragement. It's like, you may be on the path of destruction, and I want you to know that you can stay off that path. You can choose to avoid the temptation. If you're on it, I want you to know there's always, always, always a way out. If you're headed down that, it may not be easy. Uh, the exit may not be easy. Think of a highway, right? Um, God always provides an exit ramp. If you're traveling on the road, just imagine for a moment that your destination, you're wanting to go south. And you jump in your car, you get on the highway, and you start going north. And you're just traveling, enjoying yourself, and all of a sudden you're aware, like, wait a minute, we're going 100% in the wrong direction. We're going north when we're supposed to be going south. How many of you are grateful for exit ramps? I had to use one this week in Dallas. I missed an exit. It was like, whoo, thank God for the exit ramps. Go up a little bit further, do a U-turn, get back on track, no big deal. See, the, the idea is this. It's like when we get on this path of destruction, God is so good to us. He says, hey, Shane, I'll always provide for you an escape. I'll always provide for you an exit ramp, no matter how far down that path you are. And so here's the idea. The sooner the better, right? Can you imagine like, hey, I know I'm on the wrong path, but I'm just going to keep driving because, hey, we're in the car. We're going somewhere. That's dumb, right? And we're further and further. It almost feels impossible to get back to the original destination. It's the same in our faith. It's like, I've got this sin, and I'm, I'm going along this destructive path. God's offering me these exit you know, uh, ramps, and I'm just going to keep on going. It's worse. It gets worse. It's just compounded over and over, as we see in the life of David. And so the counsel is, take the exit ramp. It may not be easy. And if you look at the text, God gave David a few exit ramps. The first one was when he looked out of his palace and saw a beautiful woman bathing. He could have just said, she's pretty, and then been on about his business. Exit ramp, right? When he sent somebody to say, who is she? And they come back and say, she's taken, David. She's married to Uriah the Hittite. She's off limits. Exit ramp opportunity, right? But we see over and over where David just kept pursuing and kept pursuing, going deeper and deeper and deeper down this destructive path. And the same thing is true for us. God loves us enough that he provides the grace of an off-ramp. And if we're wise, we'll say, you know what? I know that the longer I wait, the worse this is going to get. So I need to take that exit ramp. Amen? Thank God for exit ramps. God will always provide a way out. Better than... Taking the exit ramp would obviously be to stay in the right lane in the first place. If you noticed, I didn't start with verse 1 on purpose because I think that's the key to all of us. In David's life, it says, In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Amorites. In other words, David stayed home. Kings go out to battle, and David should have been out with his men in battle, but instead he put himself in a position where he was easily tempted and given into that temptation. I think the same thing is true for us as well, is to avoid those cases altogether. We'll be able to say, God, I, I want you to light my path, and I want to be so sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading in my life that when the, the bait is cast or when the desire in me, I just cast that imagination down because I know it's leading nowhere good, and it's only going to get worse. And so, God, I just want to cast that down, and I want to follow you and be obedient to you and and even when we slip into sin, to be quick to say, God, I, I admit to that, to you, that that's sin, I confess that, would you forgive me of that sin? Hey, brother, I'm struggling with this particular sin. Could you be praying with me? Could you call me every once in a while and hold me accountable, right? 
that God just loves us enough to provide us these opportunities to stay in the right lane by saying, God, I just don't want to disappoint you. I don't want to go down that road. I think the encouragement to me also, as I said at the beginning, is you know, the, the idea is that really good people can do some really, really bad things. And every one of us in the room are capable of doing just that. But I love, love, love the scripture that says his mercy is new every morning. And his love for us. And while we're faithless, he remains faithful. And in his faithfulness, he always provides a way of escape. And I would say this. You may say, Shane, it's too, I'm done way down that road, Jack. And it's too late. Damage is done. God can still redeem it for his glory. Romans 8, again, for we know that God causes all things, including those bad, big uglies, right? God uses all things to work together for good, for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. God is in the process of developing our character, and I love the fact that he loves us right where we're at, but he refuses to leave us there, right? And he wants to grow us in our faith, and he will use crucible moments, and I think that David's example is there for us, just that as an example it's like, man, if it could happen to the man after God's own heart, it could happen to me. Maybe some of you here today, you're like, man, I'm, I've taken the bait. I'm on a very dangerous, destructive path right now. I'm scared. I, I'm, I'm scared that it's going to be exposed. I'm, I'm scared what people are going to think of me. Can I just reason with you for a moment that God is a merciful God, and he already knows, and he stands waiting for you just to come clean to him. This is like, God, if it's true that you've provided me a way of escape, God, give me the courage to take that step. And I know that it's not going to be an easy step. And I know that there are probably some consequences there, but how many know the longer you go, the harder it gets? So when it comes to finding ourselves on a destructive path, the sooner the better when it comes to taking the exit ramps. And I love, love, love that God loves us enough that he always provides a way of escape for us. So in a moment, a crucible moment of decision, when faced with desire, temptation, given into sin, will we choose integrity, that is to do the right thing, or we choose, like David in this case, deception, to give into the sin and to try to cover up? Can I just tell you, it doesn't work. And while we may fool men, we don't fool God, and he's the one that matters most. Amen? So listen, I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to know that God is a loving and forgiving and merciful God. And I've had people before that come to me with some really crazy stuff. Shane, what do I do? Now, let me tell you what my counsel is always. Bonehead? No, I don't do that. I promise I don't say that. Um, but but here's, what, here's the temptation. Well, if you'd have done what I told you to do the first time, I don't do that. You know what I say? Where do we go from here? Because there's always an opportunity to go from where you're at to where God wants you to be. There's always an exit ramp. Amen? So if you're here today and you're carrying some stuff, you're like, Shane, I don't really know what to do. And you're like... You know, the courage is like, God, I just, I, I need to get this out. I need to talk. Man, I want you to know that we're always open. We're a safe place, and we can pray for you. Man, maybe you already have someone in your life that you trust that way, that you would take that step and find freedom and bring it to the light. There's power in the light. Satan can't hold you prisoner anymore. Can't speak those things in your ear. There's freedom in walking in the light. Amen? The reality is we're all in the same boat. We all sin. We all fall short. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the example today in David's life. While we... Lord, if I imagine what David might feel like to know that for thousands of years, churches are talking about his story and how humiliating that might be. God, I thank you that you've included it in your scriptures. 
And I believe, as you say, as Paul um, told us, that these things were given to us as an example and also as a warning that we wouldn't follow the same destructive path. Lord, I know that you love us, and I know that while we live in this, this earth, on this earth, in this life, we're going to face temptations, and, and, and many times we'll give in to that. But God, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace of loving us enough that you don't want to leave us there, but you always provide for us a way of escape. My prayer today, Lord, is that we would not get too arrogant as to think that we could never fall ourselves into some sort of sin. We're good at looking at other people and making judgments and saying something, maybe even internally, like, I would never do that. But the reality is, God, we're all capable of it. So would you help us to just walk in humility, Lord, and to acknowledge and recognize our own possibility of falling into that. But Lord, let us also understand and remember the fact that you're faithful. And it's also possible for us to avoid that altogether. And it's, it's possible for us to correct a wrong and to take the exit ramp that you provide for us. God, thank you for your exit ramps. I pray that today, if there be anyone here that's, they may be the only one in the room that knows, but you know. And, Lord, you may be calling them to take a desperate step and, and, and hit that exit ramp, knowing it's a tough, tough decision they got to make. But, God, I pray that they would have the courage to take that step, find uh, that trusted person. Lord, come to you, Lord, to bring that to the light because Satan's having way too much fun reminding us of all those failures and beating us down. And we know, God, that that has no power in the light. And so give them the courage to bring it to the light and to accept whatever consequences may be there so far, but let them also recognize that the longer it goes, the worse it's going to get. And Father, that's what we want to avoid. We want to look at the example in Scripture so that we don't make the same mistakes. Thank you, God, that you're a loving and faithful and merciful God. Would you forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness? Help us to continue to grow in our faith and in the crucible moments of our lives that we wouldn't see it as just something that we have to endure, but we may see your hand in the background doing something mighty in our lives. Lord, would you continue to grow us in our faith? We humbly ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.